Hello, and welcome to Why'd You Buy That? This week, we talk about Singles Day and how that stacks up to Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping. And then we have uh, an interview with Johanse Harrison of The Money Script, and he tells us about some of his strategies with clients he works with on changing their behavior and their spending and share some stories from his childhood and how he got into financial advising. Stick around. Hi, and welcome to Why'd You Buy That? I'm Drew Adams. I'm here with Dan C. Toller and Jessica Steele. So guys, uh, Halloween is over. We're in the middle of November, and we're getting ready to come on to the, the Christmas season. Prime Day happened, and I thought it would be fun. We thought it would be fun to talk about these different shopping days and whether they really influence our behavior. So, Jessica, you've done a little background research. I've heard of this Singles Day that happens in China mostly, correct? So, what is the origin of of Singles Day and how big is it? Well, first of all, you know, coming from kind of the the fashion side of things, working at brands over the years, this is like our Super Bowl we're going into. You know, November and early December is you gear up for it for months and it's really, you know, the the most important shopping days um, and can kind of like make or break your whole year. So here in America, while we have Black Friday and Cyber Monday and then now Amazon has this Prime Day, um, the equivalent of that in China in some ways is Singles Day, but it kind of has a funny origin because it started as what I'll call, you know, these like made up holidays. Like here in the U.S. we have whatever National Ice Cream Day or like these kind of just just for fun holidays. So Singles Day started a little bit like that. And it was kind of just this day. I don't want to say an anti-Valentine's Day, but it was like a you're single, buy yourself a little treat. (laughs) And it's November 11th. So it's 11-11, all ones, all single. So it's kind of a, a, just like a fun little idea. And then comes along Alibaba, which if you're not familiar is essentially the, I'll call it again, the Chinese equivalent of Amazon, but it's so much bigger in some ways. Um, and Alibaba cashes in on this singles day. They decide, you know, what a market to tap into. You know, we can put some promotions on and have people really use it as a 24-hour sale day where you can treat yourself to something new. Um, You know, don't wait for the holidays for someone to buy it for you. Just on November 11th, pick it up for yourself. So to give you an idea of how big this is, Last year, Alibaba in 24 hours on November 11th brought in over $38 billion in sales. Holy cow. That is more than Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Prime Day combined. They are just blowing it out of the water. It's wild when you think about that volume moving out in 24 hours and for like a not a, a, not a real holiday. I mean, it's it's just a day, but it's, it's pretty awesome. When did it start gaining steam? Was that like a recent internet phenomenon or was like singles day a shopping day before and just grew exponentially when Alibaba came around? Their first one was 2009. The first time. Oh, Alibaba so it's really market. recent. Yep. So, and you know, I feel like they maybe kind of caught it at just the right time where, you know, people were wanting to do more and more shopping online. You know, they're maybe avoiding the crowds of a mall on a day like you know, they don't really have the equivalent of our Black Friday, but, you know, something like that. You're kind of just at home and just it's easier in those 24 hours to shop from home. And it's just grown and grown from there. 
is it just buying anything and everything? Uh, and I'm assuming that it's not just single people doing this, that families do it and everybody, I mean, people who are married are doing it. So I looked a little bit, this is fun. I looked into, you know, some of the kind of plans for this year because we're, we'll be launching this right around singles day, but as of recording, we're about a the week. Podcast. Yep. So they've got like almost a thousand live streams lined up for that day. So one of the things that I guess they have great kind of mobile apps for Alibaba. And so that day you can watch, you know, big celebrities or your favorite brands have these live stream shopping events and kind of shop as you're watching them. And this is everything from cosmetics to electronics to cars to houses I saw that you can buy during the day. <laughs> like, I don't even know how that would work, but they're selling it all. That's how you get up to 38 billion, right? You just exactly, yeah. sell yeah. everything, get the big ticket items out. $500,000 house on sale. <laughs> 24 hours only, it's 450. I, I don't even know, but. They need to go bigger. What could possibly be bigger than a house? An office building. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So these live events, are they, they're streamed live events. Is that right? Like on the computer, so you get, you're over here, you're watching your favorite artists while you, you shop in the other window and you got it, you got it scrolling on. Yeah. And I mean, I think Amazon has some similar stuff going on from what I saw this prime day. I mean, you're not buying a house yet on Amazon, I don't think, but I saw some kind of celebrity and influencer curated Amazon shops this year on Amazon prime. So they are tapping into that a little bit, but I think Alibaba is just doing it times a hundred. So if it's 38 billion for singles day, what were the numbers on Amazon prime sales? This year I saw actually either this year or last year, I'd have to double check, but 3.5 billion a day, like cyber Monday is 9.4 billion, but obviously, you know, many more websites and brands take part in cyber Monday. So that kind of makes sense. Um, and black Friday came in at 7.2 billion last year. Wow. And is that, that's just not e-commerce. That's just, that's just buying stuff on black Friday. That was online. Yeah. I, I looked across online because that was kind of the equivalent of shopping in Alibaba, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what kind of malls and things like that tap into on Black Friday, but even still they're they're not touching Alibaba. So did you buy anything on Prime Day? I did not. Hmm. Dan, are you a Prime Day guy? I was thinking about Pi Day, March 14th. That's kept what, what kept coming to mind when you were saying Prime Day. That's how little in touch I am with what Prime Day is. Okay. Okay. I, I'm like looking this up online as <laughs> like, we're talking about okay. like Prime Day. Amazon Prime sale. I'm guessing <laughs> I did so I, maybe I bought something. I have no idea. If yeah, you did so, it was purely coincidence. Yeah, yeah. So Jess, you want to give them a background on what Prime Day is? So Prime Day is Amazon Prime, and it's this year, I think they actually did two days, but in the past, it's been a similar kind of 24-hour flash sale where just a lot of different types of products across the board on Amazon go on sale. And as with kind of all of these, it's sometimes the marketing more even than the discount that I think gets you, because this year I saw people like really getting excited for Apple AirPods on sale. And I went to look at them just because I was kind of curious. And I mean, they were only $10 off, which I know it's not nothing, but I wasn't really blown away, I wouldn't say, by some of the discounts. So I, maybe it depends on what you were looking for, but... 
Yeah. And you have to be a prime member, I think, to get mm-hmm. these, any of these sale items. So have either of you gone out on Black Friday ever and done Black Friday shopping? I've done that. I think one time we, we went out early to buy some, it was like a piece of furniture. I can't even remember if it was a, an end table or a kitchen table or something at a, at a local store. But I think that's the only time I've ever like really gone out for her. How about you, Jess? Well, in like high school and college, I worked at retail stores usually, you know, I kind of knew I wanted to get into the fashion industry. So I kind of did the first point of entry. Um, so I used to work on Black Friday typically, and it was mayhem. I I worked one year at, the, I mean, this was probably maybe 2007. And I do think a lot more people went in person then than kind of thinking they would buy all their presents online. But I worked in a huge mall at a Macy's shoe department one year and it was like people, you know, throwing boxes, but like felt like people like pushing people aside. It was a year where (laughs) boots were really popular and there was like a great discount on Ugg boots that year. And I mean, it was, it was pretty crazy. My experience with, I think one Black Friday, I can't remember what it was, but there was like something that was on sale 40% off and you had to get there early and there was limited supply. And I remember there being relatively early and the supply being gone. And then I was like, just, was, is there anything else good in here? And it's on sale. And they're like, nah, not really. And I'm like, okay, that was kind of, (laughs) (laughs) kind of a bummer, (laughs) kind of a bummer. But when, when you were working at the department store, did, uh, were the deals significant or was it more, did you feel like it was more gimmicky? No, I remember them being pretty good, but again, there were some kind of, you know, doorbuster things where it was like 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., which first of all, of course, as an employee, then we had to be there like four in the morning to open that day. And I think, yeah, you could, you were getting, you know, kind of name brand or designer shoes and boots and things that you may have really been trying to get for a Christmas present for someone, you know, these more kind of in-demand things, I'll say. And I, I think they were like 50% off in the morning, you know, so a pretty good savings. Yeah. So all this will probably be impacted a lot like this year because of coronavirus, right? And in terms of people, I'm assuming they're not going to want to go to their retail stores and crowd them early in the morning and fight for boots, you know? So I just saw recently where Amazon is hiring 100,000 more workers in its latest job hiring spree this year. And I'm assuming they're going to continue to gobble up that market share. I I think so too. I think, you know, people are going to really lean into, you know, maybe if they're not spending their budgets on travel this holiday season, or they're kind of, you know, not doing some of these other things, I feel like people are going to go bigger into gifts and holiday decorations and all that kind of stuff. Um, And Amazon and these online retailers are where they'll get it. Yeah, totally. And the other thing to be, you know, mindful right now is the U.S. unemployment rate is like 7.9% right now. So we, you know, we're having fun talking about shopping and different things, but um, there is a, a, a large swath of um, the American of America who may not have the same kind of money to spend. So thoughts with those people if they've lost their jobs during this pandemic. So cool. Well, that about sort of wraps. Anything else you want to add on um, Singles Day, Black Friday shopping? Any other interesting tidbits? I don't think so. That's it. We'll, we'll watch and see what the numbers show us this year. Okay, cool. All right. Well, everyone, stay tuned next. We're going to talk to Johanse from The Money Script 
we have a great conversation about how people can adjust their behaving, their buying behaviors based off of their values. And this is something he does with his clients and he tells us how he does it and some fascinating stories from that and from his uh, growing up. And so stay tuned to the pod. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Weekly, our app that helps you stick to a budget. It's in the Apple iOS app store. You can also find us at weeklybudgeting.com. We have a completely different take on budgeting. The traditional method is to operate on a month, to put everything into categories and subtract the money out of categories. But this ends in frustration for lots of people because they get halfway through the month. They may have overspent or underspent a category. They're not sure where to grab the money from. Oh, by the way, does this sound familiar? Hey, honey, where's the target receipt? I'm trying to figure out if that is a household expense or a food expense. It's just a disaster. So then you end up at the end of the month, you're not sure what happened and you just give up. So we've come up with a different way, which is to operate on a weekly basis. We take your recurring income, your recurring expenses, we subtract your expenses from your income, and then we come up with what you can safely spend for a week. Then we keep you in touch with that number, downloading your transactions from the bank so that you can always know what is safe to spend. This alleviates the guilt of spending and lets you spend with more joy. So we hope you give the app a try. Um, You can go to weeklybudgeting.com, click on the icon, go to the app store. You can also search in the app store for weekly budget or weekly budgeting. Right now we're at the top of the organic rankings for that. And give it a try. Let us know what you think. And welcome to the podcast and welcome to the weekly community. Hey, and welcome to Why'd You Buy That? I'm here with Johans Harrison and Dan Seetaller. Johans is a financial advisor and specializing in behavioral financial planning, which is aligning financial planning with values. He can be found at moneyscriptwealth.com and is also the host of The Money Script. Johans, say, Harrison, thanks for joining us on the pod. Thank you. Thank you. You're good to be here. So I'm very intrigued about behavioral financial planning. Can you tell our audience what that is and how you got into it? It really all began with my financial planning career almost 20 years ago. And I was, uh, my leaders believed a lot in the physiological aspects, the psychological aspects, and then the emotional and the actions that comes along with financial planning. So I was kind of dipped in that very early on. And then as my career progressed, I realized that it was more my client's behavior that had the greatest effect of them reaching their financial goals and less about the market, less about taxes, less about who's president is really, okay, what's going on in your financial household. That's, what's going to dictate how you're able to reach your goals. So I was introduced to the behavioral financial advisor designation by a good friend and mentor of mine. And I looked into it and I said, yes, this is exactly what I want because I I found that over the years, my wife and I have always been really big on values. We have values conversations every year. You know, what are your top five values? Let's write them down. I want to know what yours are. Here's what our family values are. But I noticed that I was assuming a lot of my clients' values sometimes versus actually having the conversation with them. So how do you discover someone's values and how do you make them actionable? Because sometimes I get the feeling like, well, I value, I don't know, peace or something. And it's and it's kind of esoteric and hard to pin down how that becomes something that is reflected in your financial decisions. So how did you discover your values and how do you help your clients discover theirs? So personally, I just went to online and just typed in values and 
I found a list that had, I don't know, 200 different words on it that were values. And so I initially just went through the list and circled, you know, the 10 words or 15 words that most resonated with me. And then I wrote those words down and then I narrowed it down to 10 and then narrowed it down to my top five. And that's the exercise that I would go through year after year after year. So I do the same with clients now. And I also have values cards. I don't have one I can show you, but I have these cards where I send them in the mail and I tell them to sit down with their significant other or, you know, with themselves and they go through the cards and I want to know what your top five cards are. And what's very interesting about it is that I can then use that information and look at their spending habits and ask some questions. Like, uh, here's a great one that I get all the time. Clients will say, I value health. I'll say, okay, that's great. But then I go look at their finances and I see there's a lot of expenses that are going to fast food or, or maybe I see that they're going to the gym and they have a very costly gym membership. And I may ask, well, how often are you going to the gym? Oh man, I, I never make it to the gym. It's like, okay, well, you mentioned that you value health, but yet a lot of your expenses are in fast food and you're paying for a gym membership that you don't use. I mean, I don't want to say that you don't value health, but maybe we need to look closer at that because your financial behaviors are not in alignment with your values or not in alignment with your goals if they had a, had a certain goal in mind. So, but yeah, that's, that's how I use it. It's just really, I want to understand, okay, what are, what is it that you value? And then go back and look at your behavior and say, okay, does this match up? Do people sometimes choose different values based off of what they see when they look at their spending? They like, I, I know I say health, but re what I really value is experiences with friends, you know? And you say, oh, that's great. No problem. Let's just rewrite, which let's be honest about what your values truly are. Is Does that ever happen? Happens all the time. And I, I like to share with clients that it's okay for you to go through a discovery process on your values, because I believe that we all have this image of ourselves that we think we project out into the world. But then sometimes when we're forced to look in the mirror, we realize, oh, well, actually I do have gray hair. So I think my hair is, I mean, if you're, I mean, for me, I think my hair is jet black all the time, but my wife will quickly point out, you never have gray hair. But the same thing happens in, in finance and what people do with their money and, and they'll share that they have a certain value. And that's why I like to challenge my clients up front to say, if I see you living outside of this value, can we have a conversation about it? And what comes of that is sometimes it's they'll say, you know, you're right. I must not value my health. But then I challenge them. I said, but you can, it's okay to value your health. That's a good value to have. How do we start living in that value? How do we start setting up goals that are linked to that value? How do we build a reward system around it? You like to eat out and have fun with friends, but you also value your health and you have this gym membership. But what if you reward yourself by saying, okay, if you go to the gym two weeks, then you get to go out with your friends because you going out with your friends is not going to ruin your finances. And it's helping you live a happy, healthy life. That's part of what you need. So if you can do both of those, I think you'll have a lot more appreciation for the values that you have and be able to look back on the actions and say, oh, I'm living in my values. And I think that helps people make better financial decisions. When you were first figuring out what you valued, did you discover something in your own spending that you adjusted based off of taking the time to reflect on your values? Oh, that, that example I was giving, I was talking about myself. Oh, uh, okay. Valuing, <laughs> valuing health, but going to Starbucks three times a day. I mean, I had for, for, for years, I had health as something that I valued. But through those same years, this is when I was still in corporate America, I could easily go to Starbucks twice a day and not think twice about it. And when I would go, I wasn't just getting a black coffee. It was a sugar laden coffee. And sometimes it was a donut beside it. And, you know, I started, well, it was after my suit started not to fit. 
Mm. I had to have the conversation with myself about, wait a minute, do I really value my health? And my parents both have had uh, health issues. They both died younger than I, than I think they should have. And I had to kind of go back and reflect, all right, well, am I living in this value? What changes do I have to make? And I wasn't willing to give up Starbucks, but I was willing to stop having the sugar-filled drinks. I was willing to stop having the uh, donut on the side. And over time, my coffee got blacker and blacker and blacker to the point of like, I can't drink this every day because there's no sugar in it. And then I realized, wait, I just kicked the habit. Now I get the once a week, you can count on once a week in my household, we're going to Starbucks. I'm getting a donut. I'm getting a pumpkin spice something, but I'm doing it once a week. But if you were to look back at my finances 10 years ago, I was spending easily a hundred dollars a week just in Starbucks. It seems like there's a clear correlation between values and kind of day-to-day spending, spending that you'd manage on a budget. Do you see a correlation with people's values and their longer-term financial plans as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that comes a lot when people put on their values that they value autonomy or that they value um, family, because that leads to longer conversations. And, and what comes out of family sometimes is I value spending time with family. And if you have a family that doesn't live next door, spending time is going to cost you some money. You're going to have to get a plane and things of that nature. So I'm able to then have the conversation with clients and say, okay, well, right now your spending habits are X, but if you really value family, which you said you do, since you value, I try not to say if, I say to them, since you value your family, let's build into your plan how you can spend more money on traveling to see your family, or let's bake into your financial plan how you can take the whole family on that cruise. Probably not the best example to use in 2020, but that's <laughs> a, I have a lot, there's a lot of clients to do the family cruise type thing or taking the whole family, having the money set aside so that the family members that you pick, no matter their financial situation, you say, hey, get on the plane, we're all going to Hawaii or Mexico or what have you. But then going back to autonomy, I am a firm believer that we all on this planet, if we use money as a tool to get us the things that we want on planet Earth, that all of us have a desire at some point to have some sort of financial independence where we don't have to depend on going to work, don't have to depend on the government, don't have to depend on a friend, family. We just, we have enough. And in order to get to that point that you have enough, you're going to have to make some changes today. You're going to have to, A, figure out what does it take? You know, how much is enough and see how, it, whatever that lifestyle is, whatever that builds, how does that fit into the value system that you've set up? And then when it doesn't fit, it's like, okay, well, something's got to change. Either you don't really value what you say you value, or we got to change the goals and make some behavioral changes. You call your podcast the Money Script, and people can find you at moneyscriptwealth.com. What is a money script? Favorite question. So this began, of course, with, with me when I started my registered investment advisory service. I had to come up with a name for my firm, and I was stuck. Uh, I started with Harrison Financial Services because it's easy. My last name is Harrison Financial Services, boom, it's done. But as time went on, and this is while I was actually co-working with another investment advisor, I wanted to think of something that I could create a legacy from, something that could live longer than I do, potentially I sell one day that had some, some meaning to it. And I was listening to one of my favorite artists, which is Jay-Z, 
And he had a song that I won't repeat because I think this is a PG show. <laughs> um, but the end of the the hook, he said, stick to the script. And just that day when I heard it, I was like, yeah, stick to the script, stick to your money script. And boom, it hit me. Now, of course, I immediately went to Google. I was like, oh, who else has thought of this? And I found a few other people that were using the phrase. But what it really meant to me was, it, it, or what it really means to me is, as I mentioned earlier, all of us on the planet that use money as a medium to get what we want, we, at some point in our life, we realized that money existed and we had our first impression. And we've all heard the saying that you can't change a first impression. From that impression, we built our idea, our views, our positive, negative, whatever they are, our impression of what money is. And from that, we created our own script. Like this, this is the, if you want to think of it as a movie script, this is what we follow our brain. Now, remember our brains from an emotional standpoint, emotional response happens three times faster than a rational one. And so from an emotional standpoint, we have this script that we've already, that's already pre-written for that. We already wrote ourselves that are pre-written. And as we approach a financial decision, something as simple as should I buy or lease a car? Like I mentioned on my last podcast, we immediately have the script that we play in our mind. Oh no, leasing is bad. We should never lease. Now, leasing isn't inherently bad. It has its place in different people's lives. It doesn't mean it's bad. It may not be for you. It doesn't mean it's bad, but you've already been taught that that's bad. So that's the whole concept of the money script. We all have our script, our movie that plays in our mind when we're faced with a financial decision. The goal of the money script or money script wealth management with clients is to help them rewrite that script. To just say, look, that was a horrible movie. We don't need to keep... Running that same script over and over and over again. It's just a bad movie. So let's rewrite it. What do we want that script to sound like? And some of the conversations that I have with clients begin with, tell me your first impression of money. And, you know, the things, one of the most common things I hear is I was told money doesn't grow on trees. And I'm saying, say that to a farmer, because for a farmer, if he has an apple tree farm, his money does grow on trees. It does. Now it's not actual money. He can't spend it, but if he doesn't have apples, he won't have money. Okay, so that may not necessarily be true for him, but why is that true for you? Why do you think that money doesn't grow on a tree? It does grow. It may not be on a tree in your backyard, but if you start plant, if you go out and plant a bunch of apple trees, your money will start growing on trees. So that's that's kind of kind of it is. That's how I like to think about it. That's that's just where the money script came from and where it continues to go today. And when you talk about that particular money script, money doesn't grow on trees. And thinking about how that might influence your financial behavior in the future, I mean, I can see how that can be a negative script for other financial decisions. For example, maybe there's an investment that you can make, but you hesitate, you don't pull the trigger, you wait. And why is this? It's because, well, money doesn't grow on trees and I don't want to waste this money. But it may turn out that this investment is great on the objective merits of it. But because you have this money script that's playing in your head, perhaps you don't take what would have been a good investment and you don't take the risk. And therefore, your money script has kind of held you back from from potentially making more money. Is that the kind of thing? That's exactly right. even better one than that uh, that falls into the same line of the investment is uh, money is the root of evil. It's like, well, money isn't evil itself. Money is just a tool. We could say that a hammer is evil because someone got beat up with it. But no, it wasn't the hammer that was evil. It was the person that was wielding it. So the same thing I tr- I feel is with money. And I'll run into that with clients, especially in the black community. I mean, I grew up with my father. My father said to me <laughs> when I was 20 years old and I got my insurance license, the first thing they tell you is 
go sit down with your family. So I sat down, mom and dad, and I said, dad, let's talk about some life insurance. And his words to me were, why am I going to give the white man money to, so that you can profit off my death? Now, my dad was born in 1939 in the tobacco farms of North Carolina. He was very fair skinned. So he got to live on both sides of the tracks, if you know what I mean. He got in trouble. One of his favorite stories to tell was how he got in trouble when he was like five or six years old because he went to a Klan rally to visit the Coca-Cola truck. And because the Coca-Cola truck was there giving out free Coca-Cola in 1945, free Coca-Cola. And that's where the kids flocked to. And he got whippings from the whole family for attending the Klan rally, which is probably the right thing to do. Probably He probably shouldn't have been there. Um, there's a lot of risk in going to a Klan rally as a black boy. But anyways, that created a lot of concepts in, in his mind to where he didn't even put money in his 401k because it was the idea of losing control of it because he lived at a time where there was redlining. He lived during a time of Jim Crow laws. He lived at a time when when a bank would close down because they found out that they were allowing black people to bank there. So that's what he lived with. In his mind, nothing changed. Okay. So that created some issues with me trying to talk to my father about finances. Now, later I find out that they also had claimed they, they filed bankruptcy multiple times. I mean, there was lots of other financial failures happening in my parents' life, but it had a lot to do with their money script that they had growing up and their views of how money matriculated in the black and brown community. And uh, while we're talking about that topic, I, I saw from your website, as one of your missions is to increase financial literacy, wealth, and net worth uh, within black, brown, and indigenous communities. Can you tell us more about that and any other money scripts that you, that you from your perspective, you see in those communities that are playing roles in how people choose to manage their money? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the reason why we made that a mission, and by the way, that that is the mission of The Money Script, which is the company that I do my podcasts and publishing and also classes. I teach classes from third grade all the way to college about financial literacy. And just speaking of my some of the students I have, one of my the classes that I teach is all of the students that come from black and brown and indigenous communities of this particular school. And every class, I start off with giving them a quiz on three simple questions, inflation, compound interest, difference in stocks and mutual funds. Consistently, less than half of the students can answer these multiple choice questions, which are fairly simple. And as we get into the class, I'm trying to figure, I try to find out, you know, where did this go wrong? And when I asked them about some of the classes that they needed to graduate from high school, I hear things like algebra two and chemistry and gym and biology and all of these English and, and all of these other courses. But what I don't hear is I had to take a financial literacy course. And I'm talking to, in most cases, the best and the brightest because they're the ones that got into the private college. So if they're not getting the education, what are we to say for the other individuals that don't go to the private college or don't even go to the public college or community college and go right into the working world? I can't tell you how many, actually, I can tell you a quick story about it. One of my classes, again, at a, at a college, very prestigious college at that, one of the classes was a work study group. So every student in the room, there was about 40 of them, every student in the room had a W-2 wage job, every single one of them, and they worked for the school. I brought in a CPA to the class because it was one of, the, one of the first classes we taught. It was right around tax time, and that was one of the questions. They had questions about taxes. The CPA put up on the whiteboard a W-4, 
and I handed out a blank W-4 to every student. And I said, fill out this W-4 the same way you filled it out back in August when you got this job. Half the room said, I never filled this out. Now, mind you, the professor of this class has their original W-4s in her hands. And she's like, no, you all filled them out. They're right here. I don't remember filling this out. What is this? How do we do this? So here we had 40 people, Americans, that all filled out W-4s and had no idea what they were filling out and then couldn't understand why do I owe taxes? Why are my parents mad at me? Because they didn't get a refund anymore. All of those things, because they were never taught what the W-4 is and what it means. But we graduate millions of students every single year, send them out into the real world, and we say, go figure it out. So part of my mission as being someone of the Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities is that's my focus. I want to focus on working with them. We just launched a huge initiative at the beginning of the quarter in October here to target all of the historically Black colleges and universities. And our goal in working with other partners and other teachers is to make sure that every single one of those HBCUs has a personal financial literacy course that is required so that as these students graduate, they learn maybe a little bit more just about managing their personal finances, because I know that's going to empower them to make better financial decisions. Taking one step back from the Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities and just in general, you take a simple approach to building financial wealth, right? I got that from your website too. So if that's not right, correct, feel correct me if I'm wrong. But what are some basic money lessons that most people often miss? Okay. So top of the list is cash flow rules everything around me. I don't know if you're familiar with the Wu-Tang song, Cream. Cash rules everything around me. We added an F. Cash flow rules everything around me. You, you can't outsmart math. It's income expenses. If you spend more than you make, you're going to create debt, period. That's it. And that's, that is the, I would say, the, the cornerstone of where we begin with every single client. What is your cash flow? How are you managing it? Where is money falling through the cracks? How many subscriptions are you paying for and not using? That'd be the first one. The next one would be planning for the certain certainty of uncertainty. I can't tell you how many times I've had the comment or people have asked, are your clients freaking out about the election? Yeah, two of them. Just two? Yeah, just two. The same two that freak out anytime something happens. Well, what about the others? I've helped them understand that this is just part of it. I can tell you with certainty that I don't know what's going to happen. Not only do I not know what's going to happen, neither do you and neither does anyone else. Now, we can look at all these years of data and say, well, these is, this is how things have performed over the past. You can either believe that and say, OK, I'm going to get on that train or not believe it and get on a different train. If you get on the other train, you're going to have to save a lot more money. That, that's just what it is. And also it comes with the certainty of uncertainty is, is understanding that there are some things that we can't afford to pay for. If I couldn't work anymore, that'd be a, a big loss to my household. If I'm alive but can't work and I'm not healthy, well, A, if I'm not healthy, that's going to cost that's going to cost some money. I'm paying for something, medical costs of something, and I'm not making any more money. What does that do to the rest of my financial goals? The first bankruptcy, or excuse me, the second bankruptcy my parents filed for was when my mother became permanently disabled. And shortly before she became permanently disabled, she declined to sign up for disability insurance. So it was, and it was one of those things when I asked my parents about it after the fact, it's like, what were the odds of your mother getting into that car accident? Like, well, for her, they were hundred percent. So that's the other. So certainty of uncertainty. And then two more for you is the, the power of compounding interest and working in your favor and also not in your favor. And when I'm saying not in your favor, that is the ever increasing cost of living that we tend to experience. My last haircut was $35. 
My first haircut was 10. My head's not three times bigger. My barber's not three times more effective, but the haircut cost me three times more. But that's cost of living. And then the last one, when it comes to debt, which I do work with a lot of students in transition, so that are graduating, working their first jobs. A lot of them are in the medical community as well. And I always share with them that there's three ways that you can create debt. The first way is you had an emergency. Got a flat tire, can't drive to work, got to go to work, got to fix flat tire, no money in the bank. You're going to use your credit card or you're going to borrow it from mom, dad, sister, friend, whoever. Second way you create debt is by having something that is important to you, but it's not urgent right now. And you delay, 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 delay. And then all of a sudden it becomes important and urgent. And next thing you know, you're signing for a student loan. That was me. That happened. I have a 19 year old son in school or things I won't go into right now, but I didn't save like I was supposed to. But he did what he was supposed to do, graduated early and got accepted into college with a partial scholarship. And he said, Dad, I need the rest of the money. And I was like, uh, I got some of it. How are we going to do the rest? <sighs> Department of Education, here I come. And the third way we create debt is spending tomorrow's money today and thinking we're going to have the money tomorrow and it never gets here. Or AKA keeping up with the Joneses or Kardashians or everyone you plug in that keeping up with. Those are the three ways that you will create debt in your life. That's it. They really, don't, they really doesn't come from anywhere else. We can plan for emergencies. We can figure out what your goals are and we can start saving for the things that are important, but not yet urgent. But when it comes down to that spending what you don't have, we're going to have to dig deep into values and behaviors and goals. And that's the one that sometimes can take the most time. But what I share with my clients is, look, I'm always going to put your goals right back in front of you. You said you want to buy this house. Now, do you want to eat in your dining room or do you want to keep eating in Ruth Chris's dining room? It's up to you. How did you first get into financial advising? So I gave part of it away. I mentioned my 19-year-old son. I was working at Bank of America while going to college and my ex-girlfriend said I'm pregnant. And I said, okay, that's going to be interesting. So I decided that I needed to focus more on making money and taking care of my soon-to-be child. I decided I'd make school part-time and make, and make work full-time. At the time, excuse me, I said Bank of America. At the time, it was Nations Bank. During that time period, Nations Bank turned into Bank of America. Also during that time period, I was excelling at uh, being a teller, teller manager, and working on my classes for a personal banker. And I used to get t-shirts every month for the million dollars that I had referred to the financial advisor. Because working in the bank, it was very easy to just do a query and say, okay, who's got a bunch of money sitting in CDs? And by the way, this is 1999 when mutual funds and stocks were making lots of money. And it was very easy to say, hey, Drew, you got this 6% CD. These mutual funds returned 25% last year. Why don't I refer you over to the financial advisor? So one day I wised up and I was like, okay, well, I got a t-shirt. What did you get? And the financial advisor showed me his paycheck and it was more than I'd made in the entire year. And I said, I'm in the wrong part of the bank. And he said, yes, you are. And so he wrote a referral for me to go into the broker training program. And that's when Bank of America went to, or excuse me, Nations Bank went to Bank of America. And that's when I got a pink slip. And uh, so from there, I went looking for firms that I could work for. And there was only one that was willing to hire a 20-year-old kid that did not yet have a college degree. And that was American Express Financial Advisors. And they moved me from Charlotte. They didn't move me. I moved from Charlotte to Dallas to start the job. and. I've been in financial services ever since. When did you break out on your own? Broke out on my own in 2014. And what was the inspiration for that? Well, remember I was telling the story about the Starbucks and getting overweight and all the other stuff. So all those things kind of happened at once. My mom passed away. I was going through some own per my own personal changes. I just got married and just a lot of things are going on. And the one of the biggest ones was my son 
had been heavy in the theater program since he was six or seven years old. And by the time he was a teenager, he was 13, he'd finally got a principal role in a play. And um, that play was Beauty and the Beast, and he was playing Lumiere. And that was very dear to my heart because I used to sing in choir, men solo. We were traveling a choir team, and uh, I had the solo in Beauty and the Beast. What? Okay. So that was near and dear to my heart. And um, in corporate America, I'd moved up the ranks. I was managing offices and advisors and spending a lot less time with clients and more climbing the corporate ladder. And I was supposed to be in Phoenix to do a training on the opening night of my son's play. And I chose my son and my leaders didn't like that at all. And it all kind of went downhill from there. So I, I kind of had one foot out the door and they went ahead and pushed me the rest of the way out. And um, I'd visiting with my mentors and just trying to do some soul searching. I took about, cause I'd, I'd been doing the same thing for 13 and a half years. I didn't really know anything different with the same company. So I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, but after visiting with mentors and just having some conversations, like just being independent. Well, I've been recruiting independents and telling them how bad it is to be an independent for five years. And they're like, yeah, well, now you're one of them. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> And it was one of those things where I, I, after spending some times actually with one of the independents I'd been trying to recruit for many years, I did realize that, you know, the grass was a different shade of green. And so here I am. So what's one of your favorite things about money? That it is infinite. Hmm. What do you mean? Meaning that uh, our time on this earth is finite. There's a begin date and an end date of my ability to enjoy life. The amount of money that I have the ability to enjoy, donate, create, flip, whatever, is unlimited. The money script and money script wealth management did not exist five years ago. Today they exist and they earn my family plenty of money to do the things that we want to do. That was created out of the way I see it out of nothing. So the fact that money and investments and strategies, I mean, we can even point at someone like Jeff Bezos. I mean, we've all seen the photo of him in his office that looked like my closet here with Amazon spray painted on the wall. And now the articles read, he left, lost $30 billion in a day and he doesn't shed a tear. So the fact that it can just be created and um, distributed and reinvested just from our efforts, it just amazes me. Do you have a favorite investment that you've made? It could be something, I, I know this is not on the list of questions that I prepared, so, <laughs> but I just wondering either something you bought a mutual fund or stock or, or even something that you, an asset that you bought for your house or an investment you've made in a relationship or anything. My favorite investment was after my mom passed away and knowing my my father's financial situation with losing her social security income and all that other good stuff, being able to buy their house back from the person that bought it from the foreclosure auction. Wow. That was my favorite investment. It gets better. I later, after my father passed, I sold the house to my sister for only $5,000 more than what I bought it for. And she sent me a text message about two weeks ago as she was going through her refinance to tell me that the home was valued at three times what I sold it to her for. Oh, so good. Wow. That is, so that is a great favorite. answer. Yeah. You create a lot of wealth for your sister. I did. For your family. I, did. I like to, I like to gently nudge her and remind her of that every now and then. <laughs> you like nothing. Like, Ruth Steakhouse. Yeah. Come on, sis. Like, when I, up. I did tell her that. I said, when I come to Charlotte to visit, you're treating every time. <laughs> until, when? I said, until. 
Dan, I've really monopolized the question asking here. Is there something on your mind that you wanted to ask? There was a couple of things earlier on that I was thinking about, but one specific thing was I wanted to ask you how you navigate when you're working with couples and their values don't align. How do you work through those dynamics? I say, sit down and figure it out. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I don't believe in one shoe fits all. So I will with clients, I'll let them, if they're dramatically different, then I will let them have different values. And I have in some cases said, hey, let's build two different financial plans. And I find that that that's been happening more often with my clients that have more. So when, when I'm able to say, yes, your financial goals are achievable, but I can see how they will have just totally different value. For, for instance, I have one client, one set of clients where the one value that he just does not believe in, but she does, is investing in socially conscious companies. And he's just like, no, if it makes money, I want to make money. If oil's making money, I want to make money. Do not put me in that whatever, whatever. However, over the last three years, she's outpaced his returns quite significantly. (laughs) Funny what I'll do to to someone's um, steadfast values. But for the most part, I am able to get most clients to agree on at least five values which does sometimes take a little bit of compromise. And sometimes the two values are merged together. We say, uh, you know, community and family. I'm like, oh, well, you know, for us, that's kind of the same thing. As they talk through it, they usually realize that, oh, okay, that we're kind of saying the same thing. They are just using different words. So yes, I'm, I'm really flexible on it, but it's rare that they're way on opposite spectrums. And when I've seen that they are, those relationships haven't lasted long. So it's probably best that uh, in most cases that most couples have some sort of conversation like this. Of course, I'm no therapist or psychologist. I just listen to people's money issues all the time. Money is such an interesting, tangible, measurable resource, right? And so I think it can get to really the heart of differences in values. And one of the reasons why finances can be kind of the stated reasons for relationships ending, because really it probably comes down to more of different values, right? And then you can't support these, you know, two sets of values with uh, one set of money. And so, yeah, I think that that's like, uh, it's good to see more behavioral aspects coming into financial planning, because like that is really at the heart of so much of of money and, and making a plan and identifying values. Yeah. So I, um, quick story here about that is I had a, uh, a prospect, some, a guy that I was going after for a long time. We worked in the same building. He worked for Washington mutual. Maybe you've heard of them. So the year is 2006, 2007. And after riding in the elevator many days, I'm like, okay, when are we going to sit down? Let's talk about that 401k. And he would tell me how well his Washington mutual stock is performing. And I keep saying, yeah, but you should probably diversify. He's like, for what? I've only contributed this. I've now got millions. I'm going to retire. I'm going to buy a camper and all these things he's going to do. And so he finally came and sat down with me, of course, in 2009. And no longer had millions. He now only had tens of thousands. What happened with Washington Mutual? I assume it went way down because he wasn't diversified. He took a big hit. Let's go with bankrupt. Bankrupt. Okay. Yep. So they ceased this. And so his stock basically went to zero. It went to pennies. And he was 67 years old. So time to rebuild turned into zero. And so I always like to sit back and reflect because back then I, I didn't have as many conversations, even with prospects about values. I mean, now when a client, when a prospect says, okay, well, how do you do this financial planning? I tell them, look, values, goals, behavior. If you're not with that, find another advisor. 
You know, if all you want to do is get the highest return, you're at the wrong place. I like to sit back and wonder, what did he value? I, I, I want to know. I mean, was it was loyalty? What do you think? I think maybe. Or maybe he couldn't be wrong, I, you know? What do you think it was? Did you come to a conclusion? No, I didn't. I did not come to a conclusion other than he just valued having two commas in his <laughs> in the value of his 401k, you know, or or being, he probably valued being right more than anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Decision, okay, decision I made before was right, and here's the proof. It's right until it's not. I don't know. Again, like I said, I, I bang my head against the wall and I was like, I wonder what his values were. Because I, I that's one of the ones that I sometimes think, I mean, what happened to that guy? Because when we finally sat down, one of his questions was, how do I explain this to my wife? And I was like, wait, she doesn't know that you're not a millionaire anymore? And I, I was like, man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I didn't have the answer. I was, I was only seven, eight years in the business at the time. So I didn't have as many answers as I probably do today. But, but I, I wonder sometimes what were his values? And I, I like to put myself in the situation of, okay, what happens when I see that again? Because I will. As a matter of fact, I did. I have a client that works for a company that will remain unnamed, but a lot of her income is in stock. And we had to have the questions like, hey, the stock is, is X now, but what happens when the, when it's X times four? Then what do we do? And I was able to get her to a point. It was like, I don't care if it's X times whatever. I don't want that stock to be more than this part of this much of my overall portfolio. I was like, okay. I was like, now we can get, I can work with this. Versus another client that works for the same company. When I said, hey, maybe we should sell some of the stock. No, it's going to go to 50. Okay. No, it's going to go to six. Huh? Okay. And then I'm trying to have the conversation with, with her to go back to her values. Okay. You said that you value this. You have the money now. But now you're valuing greed over what you said was most important to you. Security, for example. Exactly. Mm. And these were clients that didn't, they weren't going to realize these capital gains for tax purposes, I assume, because it was in 401ks and stuff. No, 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 no. This is, this is uh, companies that pay their employees, the tech companies that pay their employees and stock. I don't know if you're aware, but in tech Twitter kind of started off years ago where they're paying their employees sometimes 20, 30, 40% of their compensation packages in pure company stock, stock options and, and, mm-hmm. and restricted stock units and stuff like that. And I have clients where they've earned more in stock than they've earned in salary. And so we have to have conversations. And my, the way I ask them, is like, look, if your company gave you a hundred thousand dollars as a bonus, would you go buy the stock today? No. Well, that's what you're doing by not selling. Every day you don't sell, you're buying the stock again. And they're like, oh, well, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Okay. All right. Let's go back to your values. Let's go back to your goals and see how to, based on your values and your goals, what financial actions or what behaviors should you be taking or steps should you be taking as it relates to your company stock plan? Another funny part about that story was that the person who worked for Washington Mutual was working in the financial services industry. So... That's just ironic, <laughs> I guess, is the word. Um, but I have one other question going back to the managing finances with a significant other. Mechanically, do you recommend that people share account or have separate accounts? Or have you found one way of dividing the money that seems to create the most happiness and less friction? What I've found is that it doesn't matter in my opinion, it does not matter whether you have separate accounts or joint accounts. What does matter is that you both know what you have. So what I encourage clients to do if they have separate accounts is say, no problem. Let's put them both on this financial planning profile so you both can see you have 5000 in your account and you spent 4000 and 
I have 9,000 in my account and I spent seven. So combined we have, I didn't keep up in the numbers I said, but combined we have, you know, $3,000 left over. Okay. I think that part is more important than the mechanics of whose account is going in and coming out of. Now I do, with a lot of couples, I do go through when they combine it, when they see everything, the light bulb goes off and it's like, well, wait, I make two times more than you do, or one and a half times more than you do, but why are you paying the lion's share of the bills? And maybe that's just the way they wanted to be. And I've had some couples like, well, honey, I told you I'd make sure that I pay the rent no matter what I've got the rent. So I'll continue to take care of that. I'm okay with that. But then I have to have the conversation of, well, because you're paying the rent, you're not putting enough in your 401k to be able to get the match. So you're just leaving money on the table. So let's have a different conversation. This because again, going back to your values, going back to your goals, the two of you want to retire by the time you're 60. Well, in order to get there, you're going to need to save X right now. You're saving X minus something. So Who's going to put more money in their 401k? And even if the other spouse, the wife is like, well, I make more money. I'll put more money in mine. Well, that's great, but you're not going to get a greater match for putting that money in yours. So let's go back to these expenses and let's talk about it again, because your husband needs to get that free money from his employer. So let's find a way to make that happen. So I feel that bringing it all out on the table and letting them see everything, it again, empowers them to make better financial decisions and sometimes shuffle things around a little bit. So I wanted to give you the opportunity, if you wanted to, to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, since part of your mission is, uh, or part of one of your missions of your business is to increase financial literacy within Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. So what role do you see money playing in the Black Lives Matter movement? For example, there's been a collective realization that one way to support Black and Brown communities is to buy from Black and Brown owned businesses is what role do you see money playing in the whole movement? There's several. I think the first thing that it does is it we're shining a light on something that for a lot of Americans and even parts of the world just kind of goes unseen. I think one of the best examples that I have is that, um, Oh, what's that show on HBO superhero show, the Watchmen or Watchmen. Yes. So Watchmen or one of my clients who is a 70 plus year old, very well-educated, retired physician, was at the top of her game for years, retired comfortably. That episode was the first time she learned about Black Wall Street. So she had spent 70 plus years in the United States, born and raised, and never knew that there was that small town in Tulsa that was just decimated and how well that town was doing before it was. And she had to call me and talk to me. She was like, I need to talk to you about this. And we have a great relationship. So it was a great conversation. I was like, yeah. She was like, she said, when did you learn about this? Well, I already told you guys about my father. I was like, look, I learned about that when I was eight. (laughs) My father said, look, this is what they'll do to you if you get wealth and get money. So I think that a lot of what the Black Lives Matter movement is doing is, again, shining a light on some of the vast differences on how the communities of color are the, the lifestyles that they have, how they're brought up and how it happens in other communities where money stays in the community for a longer time. The black community controls about $1.3 trillion of spending each year. However, the black dollar stays in the black community for about six hours, according to studies. Whereas in the white community, it stays in for 17 days, the Jewish community, 20 days, and the Asian community for 30 days. Now, when I first heard those statistics, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. But then I started to think, I just thought of something as simple as Chinatown. When I go to Chinatown and when we'd visit New York when I was a kid and go to Chinatown, there wasn't anyone that owned those shops, those shops in Chinatown other than other Chinese Americans. And they shopped 
there just like we did tour shop there and they shop there too. So a lot of the money kind of stayed in the community. I then started to think about even some of the Hispanic communities, or even I thought about in Los Angeles, there's a small Ethiopian community and a Cambodian community. And some of those communities have done a better job of keeping the money in the community. They own the local stores and they own everything, the clothing, everything kind of stays in the community a little bit longer. And that doesn't happen, as we said from studies, when it comes to the black community. To take that a little a, a step further, just when it comes to finance, we like to emulate, or I say we, but especially in the black culture, the black culture has contributed a lot to just the status quo. If we think about the superstars, our singers and rap artists and basketball players, uh, the NFL, I think NFL there is 70% black. I think the NBA is somewhere in that range as well, as far as the players. And so that's a lot of what we see. But if you look, let's take the NFL, for example, and this is something I shared on another podcast, some researcher did, the bankruptcy rate in the United States is about 1%, but the bankruptcy rate of an NFL player is 16%. So 16% of these 70% of black people that get all of this money and a lot of money, there's a 16%, almost a one in five chance you're going to lose it all. And that just goes all the way back to how they're taught about money and their money script that they have. And I've had professional athletes of clients, so I've seen it happen in real life in real time. So I think that what the Black Lives Matter is, movement is doing is, again, shining a light and saying, look, there's a large group of Americans that are not getting a slice of the American dream because they just don't understand finance and we're not doing anything about it. And well, I won't, OK, I take it back. We are slowly starting to do something about it in the school systems, but it is very slow. And if we know that for the large majority of our school system, in the United States, they're funded by what? Property taxes. Well, if you're in a poor neighborhood that has a low tax rate and that's what's funding the school, I mean, how good is that school going to be when it comes to resources? Well, probably not as great as the one that's in the, on the other side of the tracks in a nicer neighborhood with a higher property tax rate and more money getting pumped into the school. So if we're not bringing more of those resources in, I think we continue to perpetuate those habits of, I'm more excited about buying a pair of Nikes than I am buying Nike stock. I'm willing to stand in line to buy these Jordans or stand in line to buy the new iPhone or stand in line to buy the whatever it is more than I'm willing to stand in line, sign up for a free financial literacy course that MoneyScript Wealth ha offers 15 times every single year. But, and I think a lot of it just comes from, and, and what I'd like, excuse me, that the Black Lives Matter has done. I mean, I was checking the boxes every time I was saying, look at these companies that are now investing into the black and brown communities because of all the things that have come from Black Lives Matter. And, and a lot of it, yeah, I feel is they, they want to make their own political statement about where their company stands. Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. But when Nike did it and a few other companies did, when they said they were going to commit millions of dollars over the years to racial inequality and millions of dollars to investing more into the black, brown and, and communities, those dollars, I hope and pray, will, will be invested into helping these communities understand how they can take better care of their personal financial household, because you've heard it a dozen times or probably thousands of times. Someone has said money is not going to bring you any happiness. Money doesn't make you happy. Money doesn't make you happy. The lack of money, though, will cause a whole lot of unhappiness. So you can believe as much as you want that the opposite isn't true. And as all oh, the money's not going to make you happy, but the lack of it will create a whole lot of insecurity a tremendous amount of unhappiness, and it just perpetuates itself into deeper and deeper problems down the road. That's great. Thanks for that. 
why don't we wrap up here? And as we were talking, one of the segments that we like to have, and really the name of the podcast is why'd you buy that? So the idea is to take something that you bought recently, describe what it is, and then sort of describe why you bought it as a kind of a tool, a gimmick, if you will, to sort of help us uncover our values that are behind our purchases. So I was wondering, do you mind sharing something that you bought recently? Tell us what it was and why you bought that. I do. So um, as we've talked, I, I believe a lot in understanding what my values are. And one of the values that I have is health. I want to make sure that I'm a healthier person so I can live longer and hopefully spend not a lot of money on my medical and things like that in the future. And so with that, I, ha- I have a program, one of uh, mentorship programs I sign up for. It sends me a text message randomly throughout the week, and it reminds me of my values and then asks me, what am I doing about it? So I got the reminder for about the past three weeks. So we we hit a cold snap here in Dallas where I am. And so I, when COVID hit, we stopped going to the gym as much for obvious reasons. It was closed. But then even when it opened, we just weren't too sure. Like, okay, I don't know if we want to go to the gym. I don't, I don't know if that's the right place to go. So I started running. And so running was working and helping me stay healthy and active. But then it got cold. And I was like, I don't want to run in the cold. And so for two weeks, I kept getting this message. You value health. What are you doing? And for the last two weeks, I hadn't ran. And so today I woke up this morning, I went on the Facebook shopping app or whatever. And today I bought a Olympic bar and 300 pounds worth of weight. <laughs> nice. What? Okay. Now it is in my garage. So when I get the text that says you value health and what are you doing about it? I have just removed all of the excuses. Yeah. I don't have a gym membership anymore. And that was the other thing. My wife and I, we went to a very nice gym. I mean, we were paying to our gym including the ancillary stuff that we did. We were sometimes paying $200 a month for our gym membership. So that's gone. We don't pay that anymore. So that's been cool. It's like, oh, there's an extra $200. And running only cost me a pair of shoes that I had to go get. But now, okay, so we're not at the gym. It's cold, so I'm not running. But I do have a garage and wait. So I've removed all of the excuses as to why I'm not getting healthy. And if you're going to ask, it cost me uh, $500. I paid $575 for the whole set. I also ordered a... uh, cage so i can do squat rack and all that other stuff that's gonna i was on uh amazon that ran me another three hundred dollars so it was about eight hundred dollars almost nine hundred dollars that i invested today into my weight set and the way i think about it is like well i was spending almost two hundred dollars a month for the gym so at this point with from when we stopped paying for the gym which was june to today i'm kind of even i mean i would have been spending the same money but again it, it really hit me when i brought it home i was like wow i don't have any more excuses the gym is in the garage Oh, I only have dumbbells. No, I have an entire squat rack, barbell, all the different weights. There's really nothing I can say now. I didn't have time to drive. It, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm still living with it right now. So forgive me yeah. as I kind of go through it. Like <laughs> do you have where you can do the bench press and all that? You got the I got bench press, everything. That's the thing. I, I've removed all of the excuses. And because we went down to one car with COVID, we turned in our lease and didn't renew it because it was like, oh, we're not going anywhere. So I can't say, oh, my wife had the car, so I couldn't drive to the gym. I can't say it's cold. I can't say it's too far. I mean, there's nothing. I've, I have no more excuses. I need to work out. That's good. And I like the way you talked about it as an investment. That's what it is. It's, it's an investment in my, in my health and stability of my bones and muscles and all those stuff. I'm a tall guy. I'm athletic. I deal with all the problems of knee pain and elbow pain. And every time I end up in the chiropractor, they're like, are you stretching and working out? Uh, no. Okay. Well, maybe you should be. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's an investment. In health, and it's an investment. in. I was talking with, with my wife this morning about it. I was like, well, when do we go back to the gym? 
because if now we have this at home and she was like, ah, I still like coming to the community. So you could go into her values, the community aspect of the gym. And I was like, ah, okay. Yeah, I guess you're right. I like playing basketball at the gym. I was like, but do we have to spend $200? So yeah, that, that will evolve over the next months, weeks to come. So more, more on that at a, at a later date. <laughs> cool. Well, that's a good story. Thanks so much. And um, before you go, can you tell people where they can find you? If they want to listen to your pod, if they want to, maybe they want to contract with you to help them figure out their, their financial planning and connect it to their values or listen to your courses. How can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. So uh, number one, the Money Script podcast is available on, I think, every single podcast platform at this point. So whether you're Android or Apple, or I don't know even where the other platforms exist, Spotify, Stitcher, it's on all of them. I'm working on the, hey, Alexa, this is what you need to do. Oh, you're going to have an, an Alexa app? We filled out the paperwork. We're, we're waiting. You know, Amazon's a big company. So yes, the Money Script Podcast, the Money Script Podcast, just on any of those platforms. Also, you can find us at moneyscriptwealth.com, moneyscriptwealth.com, right on the first page there, you can select uh, to get a complimentary consultation. I will meet with anyone for at least 30, 45, 30 to 45 minutes to talk about your finances. Doesn't cost you a thing. So if you'd like a complimentary consultation, I'm happy to do it. And um, Instagram at the money script, Twitter at the money script, also Twitter, my, my name at yo Harrison, you can get me there too. But uh, I, I do have some fun on my personal Twitter. I'm just let you know right now. That's not advice. That's just me being a human being. Oh, now uh, I got to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I have to ask you. So uh, there's a company that makes these peanut butter cups. What are they called? Reese's. Reese's. Okay, Dan, what are they called? What are the peanut butter cups called? Peanut butter cups. Yeah, what is it called? Reese's. Yeah. Reese's. Okay, good second. So there's this whole thing that's going on since Halloween. <laughs> Apparently, some people say Reese's. Which just oh, blew my mind. Reese's. Reese's. And so I, <laughs> I asked my wife and mother-in-law at Halloween. I had, we had a bag of candy and I said, Hey, what's this? And they both said Reese's. Oh. And I said, no. <laughs> I was like, Reese's. And he has the peanut butter cup. Reese's. Reese's sounds like, could be a disease maybe. But there is the... Once you start, now that I've told you about it, you explore it on Twitter, you'll find out that there is a large percentage of people that decide to pronounce it in a different way. Hmm. That's crazy. Anyway, that's the fun of my personal Twitter. That's cool. But yeah, you can follow us for tips and tricks and of, of just taking better control of your finances. We have this thing we do called the money mantra. So it's it's things you can say to yourself to help you rewrite your money script. Um, can you give an like, example? Money oh, absolutely. Um, money flows freely to me from known and unknown sources. Oh, yeah. I, I got to say that. Say it. Say money it. Say it. Money flows freely to me from known and unknown sources. <laughs> like, yeah, little affirmations in the morning. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I'd like to start my morning with it's a new day. Who wants to give me some money? <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, why is there no money yep. here? <laughs> it's a new day i still have no money what's the deal <laughs> gotta keep asking though you gotta keep asking yeah right that's great cool well thanks so much for coming on thank you yeah thanks a lot I've had that
my type of girl and everybody